0: Health Matters with Karen Key.
1: And a very good evening to you, and welcome to this week's edition of Health Matters. On the show this evening, I'll be chatting with Jenny Wright, coordinator of Milk Matters, and they're an organization promoting the donation of human breast milk. Heidi Falkvane, PRO for LOFOB, the League of Friends of the Blind, will be on the line, and she'll be telling us about their site restoration campaign for 2013. Samantha Falskenk, Executive Director of the Organ Donor Foundation, will be in studio. And as August is Organ Donor Month, we'll be trying to answer all those questions you might have about becoming a donor. And then David Beyeva of the Pharmaceutical Society Community Pharmacy DrugWise program will be joining us, and he'll be filling us in on the Codeine Care Initiative, which will be coming into effect in January 2014, and which will see stricter control over sales of medicines containing codeine. So that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM.
0: Health Matters with Karen Key.
1: Well, in a perfect world, all babies would have access to their mother's milk, the ideal food for babies. Well, in reality, this is not always possible. And for many reasons, a new mother may be unable to give her own milk to her baby. Well, Milk Matters is an organization supplying donor breast milk to hospitals for these premature babies. And Jenny Wright is the Milk Matters coordinator. Jenny, good evening. Welcome to the show.
2: Good evening, Karen, and good evening to your listeners. Now,
1: this is something, as we've discussed before we came on air, that, that a lot of people in the day, back in the day, when you mentioned human breast milk donation, would look at you and say, excuse me, what but the the word is slowly starting to filter out there that this is something that can be done and it's making a huge difference in the lives of these prem babies
2: it really is making a huge difference for these babies it can undoubtedly be life-saving it's not a nice to have for them it's something that they really need the babies that we supply are the very premature babies They are under 1.5 kilograms, and when you think that three to three and a half kilograms is average for a newborn full-term baby, it just gives an idea of how tiny they are. And they really aren't ready for the world, and they need breast milk. There are potentially fatal complications that they're particularly prone to. And breast milk can help to prevent that. So that's where we come in. If their mother isn't able to provide them with the breast milk that they need, which is obviously first choice and the best for them, then milk from another mother who generously donates her milk can really make the difference between life and death for them.
1: So how does this actually work, Jenny? People sitting there thinking, well, how how do you get the milk to the baby? How do you pick your donors? How does this all work?
2: How it works is that mums who are breastfeeding their own babies contact us if they have extra breast milk and it is extra breast milk. Their baby needs to come first. We certainly don't want them donating milk at the expense of their own baby. Um, and so they contact us and we have depots around Cape Town and even some nearby towns. And the moms can go and collect sterile containers there, just making it a little bit easier for them. And they fill in a screening form and we ask them to have an HIV and hepatitis B blood test done, which is done at our expense, not theirs. And that's just one of the safety measures that we take. They express the milk at home and freeze it. And then when they're ready, they can drop off a batch of milk at a depot. And for the moms who are not able to get to a depot, we do our best to make another plan and go and collect milk from them and drop off jars. The milk is then brought to us at head office and we pasteurize all the milk. We also take samples from each batch. Uh, Milk is not mixed from multiple donors. It's all one mother's milk. Um, In one batch and we take a a sample and test that for bacteria and only once we've got all of that back And it's all safe then that milk is sent to state and private hospitals for these very tiny premature babies
1: We need to make this clear up front. This is a donation. Nobody's getting paid for anything.
2: No, nobody's nobody's getting paid for their breast milk the it, it we can't take the risk of people wanting to sell the milk instead of giving it to their own babies. And the temptation is there if if you really are battling. Um, and we also don't want people to, you know, to be adding anything to the milk or anything like that. So it is mums who genuinely want to help babies. And obviously we screen the mums and we screen the milk, and it's all incredibly safe.
1: Now, people might wonder about the age of their baby compared to the prem baby. Is there a difference in the, in the milk quality? If your baby is, say, a couple of months old and there's this very prem baby, is there a problem there?
2: No, there isn't a problem. Um there's no difference in quality, but there is a difference in what the components of the milk, how much fats and and all the different things. It changes according to the age of the baby. It changes from one mother to another, it changes from one day to another depending on what a particular mother needs, but the basics are still there and it is still far better for for a baby to get breast milk, whether it's from um, a donor mother with a baby of a different age than to have to get artificial milk. And these babies thrive on it. And, you know, for for the people who are told that breast milk, once your baby's a year old, has no nutritional value, I can tell you that our babies um, that get donor milk from moms who've got a baby or a year old thrive. It's, it's so good for them. It still has all those immune factors. It has all the growth factors. It has the protection that they need.
1: Now, mothers who sign up to do this, do they have to donate every day? Do they have to express every day? How does it work?
2: No, and um, there's no set amount they have to donate. Basically, fifty ml will feed a baby of under a kilogram for twenty-four hours. And since all the babies that get the milk are under one point five kilograms, you can see how many babies can be fed. And it's up to the mother exactly how often she expresses. Some moms do do it every day because it tends to be that if you express at that time, your body is expecting to. Produce that amount of milk so it just makes it easier and the mums find having a routine of this is the time of day they express to donate works for them but others express when they can a few every few days it, it really is up to them we're just so grateful for every drop of milk that we get because literally every drop counts how do you store it once they have, have expressed the milk what do they do, do they freeze it or they, they put freeze, it in the fridge they do freeze it they freeze it within it needs to go into the fridge and it needs to be frozen within 24 hours and then um it's it's meant the cold chain being maintained is really important we can't have it defrosting and being refrozen um you know en route and um then we pasteurize and unless it's being used immediately then it's frozen and supplied to the hospitals and then they defrost it as they need it
1: so the mothers would freeze it and then transport it to you frozen or you if they can't get you you would collect it and it would still be in the frozen state yes okay right. right okay so how many babies more or less do you help with this
2: We, well, we supply five to six liters on average per day um, to the various hospitals. So when you work it out that it's it's 50 to 100 mil per day per baby, that's a lot of babies being fed. Yes, it's a lot. We tend to think that when you see in the newspapers, the 800 gram baby, the story about that, that that's the only baby. But these babies are being born every day, there's so many risk factors, and it is just astounding how many of these really tiny premature babies are being born, and unfortunately, not all their mothers are in a position to supply the milk they need. Some of these moms are incredibly sick themselves. Um, We recently had a baby who was getting donor milk. He was born at 690 grams, which is a fifth of uh, an average healthy full-term baby, and his mother was terribly ill, and she had to be rushed to an intensive care unit in a different hospital. So this poor little chap was so early. His mother wasn't there. She couldn't supply any milk. And um, the donor milk was a lifeline for him. And they were reunited when she'd recovered. She went home breastfeeding. He went home at 1.7 kilos, which seems tiny. But compared to what he started it's out double. at. It's yes. more than double. And the doctors have no doubt, his mother has no doubt, that the donor milk saved him.
1: Now do that does the hospital contact you when they have situations like this?
2: Yes, they do. And the milk is on prescription because we want to make sure that it's the babies who need it most. All babies need it. We would love to be in the position and we dream of the day that we're in the position to supply to any baby who doesn't have access to milk. But right now we have to prioritize and use the milk to help as many babies as possible and the babies most at risk if they don't get it. Um, So we need to make sure that it's those babies. And also we don't want to undermine breastfeeding. So donor milk can't be too easily accessible so that mums feel they don't need to make the effort or staff feel that they they don't really need to encourage the mums. So the staff really encourage the mums to express for their own babies. And it's really an interim thing to get the donor milk. Um, And then hopefully the mum can take over from there.
1: How long do the babies normally stay on the donor milk for? I mean, is it a limited time? Because obviously if you you have such a limited supply, and as you say, there's almost a baby being born every day that needs this, is there a limited time that you put this baby on the donor milk?
2: It is a limited time. It isn't normally we can't say for sure it's for two weeks or three weeks. For the mums who've had multiples usually it's only for a couple of days that they need milk if they need it at all but sometimes they just need that little bit of help while they're getting the supply up to feed triplets and so then it would only be a couple of days. But for a mum who's terribly ill and has a very tiny 600-700 gram baby then it might be a bit longer and it also depends on the baby and how well they're doing. If they are Showing signs that they're really struggling Then the doctors will do all they can To keep that baby on the breast milk But they have to Assess each situation, and it depends how much milk we have available. It's almost
1: a case. It is a case by case situation. It
2: is a case by case, and it's also how much milk we've got. So there are times when we simply don't have as much as they need, and the doctors have to look at the babies and decide which babies most badly need that milk. So that's where we really appeal to anybody who is in a position to help mm. us to donate, because they 50 ml or 100 ml, you know, that can feed a baby who might otherwise not be able to get donor milk.
1: Now I was going to ask you, how do people go about signing up to become a donor?
2: They can phone us, they can email us, and we'll send them the information about donating, we'll tell them where the nearest depot is, and um, and, and give them all the information and the forms that they need. And it really, we try and make it as easy as possible. Is it only in Cape Town
1: at this stage, or have you got depots around the country
2: We are Western Cape, mainly Cape Town, but we also have depots in Stellenbosch, Somerset West, Hermanus, um, and...
1: And nothing much in the rest of the country, unfortunately. No, but there
2: are other milk banks in Durban and Johannesburg, so if people um, contact us, we always put them in touch with any milk bank that we know of. There's a milk bank in George. So we do try and, and get them to go to the nearest milk bank where there is one.
1: Okay, so if you're not in Cape Town as such, I will give out all the contact details in a moment, and you somewhere else in the country, you're very welcome to call them. Absolutely. And they will put you in touch with the nearest one. Oh, but
2: definitely. It is
1: a vital service, and, and it's, you'll be really literally saving a life.
2: Literally saving a life.
1: So you had your recent uh, Milk Bank Awareness, Human Milk Bank Week, that was not that long ago, and uh, this is really all just to create more awareness and to let people know that the service is out there. It is. And to help people to come to the realization that all this extra milk that they have will actually go to saving these little babies.
2: It will. And also for people to realize they don't need to have huge amounts in Mm. order to donate. Just 50 mil, it's a couple of tablespoons. It's not a lot at all. No, it's a couple of tablespoons, and that really can feed a baby for a day. It's hard to imagine, but it really can. Can and that can make the difference between life and death for these little babies.
1: So we need to get people out there to to go out there, and this is your do your service. You know, we talk about Mandela and the twenty hours of service. Well, it won't take you twenty hours; just take a few minutes, and you're doing your, your sixty-seven bit. mil. You, for your, yeah, do your There you go, sixty-seven <laughs> mils a day, not too much. And it, as we said, we will be saving. A number of lives, and uh, Absolutely. we need to get more people onto the registry to because people obviously aren't going to be if once they're on aren't going to be on there forever. They're going no. to just be on there until they finish breastfeeding. That's right, and then they stop. And we need more people to replenish the list. That's right. So you're constantly needing.
2: And there new are donors. Also, there are also ways that people can help us if they're not breastfeeding because obviously not all of us are breastfeeding, but mm. we still want to help. So people are welcome to contact us if they would like to sponsor anything. We're on the My School, My Village, My oh, Planet right. program. Okay. Mm. So we can be nominated as a beneficiary. It doesn't cost anybody anything. And that's just as valuable because as a nonprofit, the funding is always an issue. So we welcome any support like that. Every cent counts just as much as every drop of milk in feeding babies
1: very important work you're doing Jenny and uh, hopefully if I'm going to give out the contact details now please do get in touch with them if there's any way that you can help not as as Jenny said if you're not breastfeeding at the moment there's lots of other ways that you can help them so you can give them a call or email them have a look at their website lots and lots of different things that you can possibly do Jenny thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show this evening hopefully we've, we've awakened the uh, consciousness of a lot of people out there to we'll, uh, hopefully get in touch with you quite soon
2: thank you so much Karen, for the opportunity and we look forward to hearing from all your listeners I
1: hope so Jenny Wright is the Milk Matters coordinator and if you'd like to find out more about this amazing work that they do, you can take a look at their website, it's www.milkmatters.org, you can email them at info at milkmatters.org and their two phone numbers, it's 021-659-5599, 021-659-5599 or there's a cell number 082-895-8004, 82 895, 8004, 082 895 8004. And all these contact details will be on the Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM, if you miss any of them, or you can email me at healthmatters at SAFM.co.za. At Specsavers, we continue to bring you quality eye care at affordable prices. Our incredible multifocal lens features the latest in digital surfacing technology, resulting in sharper vision and a smoother transition between long and short-distance viewing. See your world through new eyes. Change to incredible multifocal. Now only 547 Rand per lens. Specsavers, for affordable eye care and a whole lot more. T's and C's apply
0: health matters with karen key
1: well this will be the fourth year that the league of friends of the blind in conjunction with the cape eye hospital will be running their site restoration campaign now the campaign will assist 100 indigent individuals with free cataract removal and lens replacement surgery during october which also is eye care awareness month and also in Corporates World Site Day. Heidi Falkvan is the PRO for Lofob. Heidi, good evening. Welcome to the show.
3: Good evening to you, Karen, and good evening to your listeners.
1: So, this is year number four that you've been doing this amazing work. Tell me how this all works, Heidi.
3: Okay, Karen. Um, as we've, um, you know, you've rightfully said, our partnership is between LOFAB and the Cape R Hospital, and LOFAB is responsible for all the administration part of the project, and the Cape R Hospital comes on board where they assist in making the surgeons available, the facility available, and of course, you know, providing the whole surgery at no cost to the patient.
1: How do you choose the
3: patients? Okay, patients are chosen um, really with regards to their medical reports. So what we do is um, we would profile every candidate, and based on the density of the cataract, the candidates are chosen. So, for example, if a candidate has a cataract in both eyes, that would make them, you know, of course, one of our first priority cases. So it, it's all depending on the density of the cataract and whether the cataract is in both or in, in both eyes. So it, it's all to do with the severity of the of so that we can ensure and restore sight um, back to the to the to the candidate.
1: So you do a hundred? Is it every year you've done a hundred and you're doing a hundred again this year?
3: Current this year is actually the fir- um, the the first year that low-fob is um, you know going to be making um, the operations available to hundred. Since the first year, and the campaign has grown over the years, the first year we, we did a trial run where we only helped nine candidates. The second year, that has moved over to um, 26. Um, in, in Last year, we were up to 65. And this year, of course, we'll be moved, doing 100 people, all at, um, you know, um, at no cost to the, to the candidates. And the value of each operation is, is at 25,000 rand.
1: It's an amazing service, Heidi, and I mean if people are wanting to contact you will they just get hold of you at LoFOb to put their um, request in so to be possibly eligible for selection, if you like.
3: Okay, yes, that is the the process. Karin, what we would um, recommend people do if they know oh, they have a cataract, we, um, the only requirement is that we need a script. This could be a script from an optometrist, from an ophthalmologist, or from the local healthcare facility, you know, confirming that they do indeed have a cataract. Once they bring along that script, they come to LOFAB and come and complete an application form, and we will take care of the rest from there. We will then submit the paperwork to the Cape R Hospital, and we will ensure the necessary screening is done, the operation, and the follow-up.
1: And this is specifically aimed at people who are indigent, people who otherwise couldn't afford to have the operation, people with no medical aid, no medical cover, and who are possibly more disadvantaged than the rest of us who have medical aid, for example.
3: Indeed so, Cardin, And also, you know, the Cardin, um, because cataracts is the leading cause of blindness, you know, state hospitals are inundated with requests for these cataract removals. And we have instances where um, patients have been on state waiting lists um, for up to two years and you know especially in instances like that we, we really try to assist those types of candidates so we encourage people out there you know if you, if you are if you have been on a waiting list for so long please make the contact with us we're not asking you to remove your name from the state list you can keep your name on the state waiting list and on our list and that would just increase your chances of being helped sooner
1: so when is this all happening, Heidi? This is, next, this is in October, is it?
3: Current, in actual fact, the application process is open because what we're starting to do as early as September, we're starting to do what we call the, the first screening. So, you know, the patients will go through to the hospital and be screened by an ophthalmologist um, just so that we can get the size of the lenses that need to be replaced and so forth. Once we have all that information of the patient, the actual operation starts in October and will, you know, of course run through Eye Care Awareness Week.
1: And some of the stories must be absolutely heartwarming, the ones that people that have gone through this in the past few years.
3: Absolutely. Um, Karen. you know, it, it is such a joy to Lofob and to the Cape Eye Hospital. When people come back, you know, with a, with a story to say, because of this campaign, I'm now able to continue my, you know, my job. And you know, there's just one story of a gentleman that really stands out. He was 37 years old. He was working in the textile industry, and you know, being the breadwinner of his family, he was very, you know, shaken by the fact that he was told he has a cataract, and of course, he's, you know, he feared losing his employment. And you know, when he came to to he said, "Listen, I've been on a waiting list more than almost two years now. I really need some assistance." And you know, we we um, entered into discussions with the Cape Our Hospital after the surgery. He was sorted out and, I mean, he's able to do his work as a cutter in the industry and, you know, he's, he's just back to his normal self, able to provide for his family. And it's really, you know, stories like those that, you know, give us a, a motivation to, to do this kind the kind of work we do so we can help people out there in the community.
1: Now, you mentioned earlier, Heidi, that uh, cataracts were one of the, main, the leading causes of blindness worldwide. And LOFAP is very, you don't just help people with the surgeries, but you also promote a healthy lifestyle because that's also part of it, the regular eye exams and all that sort of thing as well.
3: Absolutely, Karen. and you know, uh, just statistics show that 80% of blindness can be prevented if if it's detected in its early stages. So we we continue to promote the importance of regular eye examinations. And especially in instances where patients, you know, live with diabetes and hypertension, it is crucial that they go for regular eye examinations because, you know, it's, it's, it's through these uh, examinations that one can detect, you know, problems in its early stages. Um, if I can just make one example, glaucoma, you know, it's called the thief of eyesight and many people may live with a condition but never know it. And, you know, there are no warning signs really attached to, to the condition. And, you know, sometimes people find out when it's too late and they're already in the process of losing sight. Whereas if they had gone for a regular screening, picked it up and they could have actually gone on treatment and that could have delayed, you know, the, the, the serious effects of the condition.
1: And also it's very important that if there's a history of, of eye problems in your family, you are now more than ever one of those people that really needs to go regularly for eye checkups.
3: Absolutely Karin and that we cannot, you know, urge people to do more. Um, like, definitely like with family histories and definitely, you know, the chronic illnesses are, I mean, we see this on a daily basis at low fob people you know losing their sight because of diabetes because of hypertension and so forth so we cannot encourage people enough you know, please go for the regular eye screening. It is so, so important, and it can save your sight.
1: Now, the sad thing, though, Heidi, is that you guys, are, well, not sad for us who are here in Cape Town, but this is a national program, so if there are people around the country listening to this who f- will fall into the category of being eligible for the surgery, would they? Would it be possible for them to apply as well, or is it well, only for people in the Cape?
3: Karen, you know, our, our campaign is actually open to, to people throughout the Western Cape, And particularly, you know, this year we've just had a meeting with the Minister of Health. And our focus this year, we'd really like to help people in the rural areas of the Western Cape. You know the smaller towns who may not have that easy access, and so, and you know, so if people are out there in the smaller towns and needing assistance, we encourage them please to make contact with us, and we will do our level best to assist them.
1: And to get hold of you, Heidi, is it just on the number zero two one seven zero five three seven five three? Is that their first port of call?
3: That's the first port of call, and they can also email us um, at info at lowfarb dot org dot
1: Okay, and when they email you, what do they need to tell you?
3: Okay, we need all their contact details. That's very important. And then we will then, of course, follow that up and, you know, give them the necessary information.
1: And as you said, they need to have a script from either an ophthalmologist or an optician or a doctor or somebody to explain what their medical condition exactly is.
3: Absolutely, and confirming that they do indeed have cataracts.
1: Okay, and I mentioned also that you do lens replacement surgery. Is that, what is that?
3: i in with when the cataract is actually removed, they actually replace a new, they, you know, the patient is then fitted with a new lens as well.
1: Okay, so it's the whole, you're doing the whole procedure. The so whole
3: procedure gets done, yes. It's an and, and after the surgery, we also do the follow up with the patient.
1: So, it's, it's really an amazing opportunity for those people listening who haven't been able to afford to have this done, or as you said, have been on a, a state waiting list forever. And this possibly could be an answer to a prayer for a lot of people.
3: Absolutely. And you'll be so surprised, Karen, even just today we had an application from a 38 year old. You know, so people are often of the, of the opinion that, you know, this really happens when people are much older. But on the contrary, we see a lot of people within their cities and so forth, you know, that actually have cataracts.
1: Well, Heidi, it sounds like an amazing campaign, and I'm sure you'll be doing amazing work again this year. And gosh, maybe next year there'll be more. This year's 100. Maybe next year will be more than that. So. We, we
3: absolutely hope that the numbers will grow from year to year. And we cannot say thank you enough to the Cape Hour Hospital, you know, for everything they invest to make this possible for, for all of the people out there in our communities.
1: Well, thank you very much indeed for telling us about this and for your time on the show this evening. Thanks very much. It's
3: been a great pleasure. Thanks, thank you, Heidi. Karen. Good night to you. bye
1: Heidi van is the PRO for LOFOB, the League of Friends of the Blind. And for more information on the campaign, you can contact Heidi on 021-705-3753. 021-705-3753. You can email her at info at And you can also take a look at their website, www.lofob.org.za.
0: Every weekend, SAFM brings you the people at the center of the stories. We give you a clear perspective on national and international events. Find out how on Weekend AM Live from 6 every Saturday and Sunday morning. SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Health Matters with Karen Key.
1: August is Organ Donor Month and joining me in studio this evening is Samantha Fulskank, Executive Director of the Organ Donor Foundation. And we're going to hopefully answer all those questions that you might have about becoming an organ donor because we need you. Samantha, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good
4: evening. Thank you for having me.
1: So, Organ Donor Month. Um, Mm. First of all, I think one of the questions that is in most people's minds when you talk about organ donation is, How 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 am I going to be quite sure that I'm actually dead and that they're not going to suddenly just want you you know I mean you've (laughs) heard this for years are they going to make quite sure I'm dead before they start harvesting the organs? Yes,
4: (laughs) well I think the thing is with with organ donation there are a lot of fears and misconceptions Mm. around the subject. So for us, it's really educating people and explaining that you know there are a lot of myths and a lot of fears, but they're not true. So yes, um, to answer that question specifically, two doctors who who have to or were not part of the transplant team have to do a series of tests internationally recognized test is to to um, diagnose you brain dead. Brain dead is not like being in a coma. You'll never recover. And actually, in actual fact, in most cases, when you are brain dead, the doctors and ICU staff only have a matter of a few hours normally to remove the organs, discuss the decision with the family and the whole process that follows from there. So it's absolutely that. And I think people also think, you know, often people ask me, will doctors let me die? Will the paramedics let me die so that they could use my organs? And I understand that this is fears and, and, and we have to address these issues.
1: Yeah. But I think before we get into all the things about organ donation, yes. one of the most important things, though, is that you need to tell somebody. Yes. you need If you want to be an organ donor, you need to discuss this with your family. It's not exactly dinner table chat, yes. but it's something <laughs> that you need to talk about because at that moment, it's possibly the most, it is the most emotionally difficult terrible time and yes. you really don't want to then sit there and think well i wonder if they did want to or- donate the organs i don't actually know
4: absolutely so in south africa it is we've got a system of required consent that means that they need to discuss the decision with your family before removing any organs um and one of our slogans is tell your family today so very important to do this we actually we hear lots of stories of of actual donors there was a, a young um junior Primary school student, I think about 12 years old, they did a talk at their school, went home, told their parents he wanted to be an organ donor, and he landed up in a situation where he was an actual donor And the parents said, yes, he discussed it with me. So this is the fact that the reality is if your family know, it's so much easier to make that decision. And just knowing that out of your death, you're saving so many other people. That's
1: the point. Let's talk Mm -hmm. about how many lives you can actually save.
4: One organ donor can save the lives of up to seven people. So you can donate one heart, two kidneys, potentially two lungs, a pancreas, and a liver. The liver can even be split from one adult to two children. They've done that. where they've, They've split the lobes and it regenerates again so that's quite um, miraculous in itself. Um, one organ donor can also improve the quality of life of up to 50 more people so you can donate your corneas, your skin, your bone and your heart valves so potentially you can help up to 57 people
1: That's incredible.
4: It's amazing and skin I just have to just mention mm. that because a lot of people think skin oh that sounds awful my body's going to be disfigured not at all it's as thin as a sunburn peel, very thin layer removed from areas such as the back of your arms the back of your buttocks you can have a normal open casket if you choose to do so so the body is not disfigured in any way now i
1: was going to ask you because that's also a lot of people who are concerned about that you yes. know what is my my relative gain to look like yes. after you've done all of this no,
4: absolutely and with removal of bone they remove the long bone from the legs normally from the arms they would replace this with the replace that bone with the prosthesis if the eye the whole eye is removed they replace it with, with um also, a sort of a prosthet- prosthesis, and then they would close it with one uh, with one stitcher. So the body looks the same. I've actually seen photographs of actual donors. I've witnessed it in in an ICU situation where they've removed donor a or, uh, donor organs. I was able to do that, and it's amazing the respect and it's like a normal operation. They treat you in the exact same way.
1: Now, people won't worry about the fact that this could delay possibly the funeral or the burial. What? Yes. How long does all of this take?
4: Normally, in a ma- within a matter of hours. So once they've discussed the decision with the family and the family have given signed consent at that time. It literally takes a matter of hours before the, all the organs are removed, transported to wherever it's needed. Most times they try to keep it within the same region. Sometimes they need to uh, transport the organ to another region. We have a flight fund that... Um, we have some sponsored flights and we have a flight fund that pays for chartered flights when it's needed currently our flight funds are depleted it can cost from 50000 to 100000 per flight to transport uh, hearts you would normally use it for hearts liver and kidneys um, never just for one organ always for multiple organs um, the heart has to be removed and transported and implanted in the person within 4 to 6 hours
1: wow so it really can't so, go too far no
4: <laughs> ok
1: and now, what people also want to know, if I've got a medical condition, can I still become an organ donor?
4: Absolutely. We actually, what we encourage people to do is, even if you have cancer, HIV, or any, actually, in our brochure we say, if you have HIV, you're not allowed to be an organ donor. But the fact is, in Cape Town, um, they're performing, I think I mentioned this last time on the I show. I think I
1: spoke to the doctor from Kutuskia yes. doing the kidney Ami transplants. Yes, yes, she's amazing. Right. She
4: is amazing. So, they, they're doing HIV, and this is the first a first in the world mm. Um So from an HIV-positive cadaver donor to an HIV-positive recipient, always from HIV to HIV-positive. Cancer, you can be clear of cancer. So even if you've had cancer, there's a possibility they could use. And then people ask us questions like, I drink or I smoke. I'm a social drinker or social smoker. That's absolutely fine. All tests, in actual fact, are done at the time of your death. So they'll determine then and there which organs can be used, which organs can't be used. Um, so we always encourage people, no matter age limit, we actually say to everyone, sign up. Because the thing is, once you sign up as an organ donor, I mean, in most cases you tell your friends, you tell people about it, or mm. oh, sign up as an organ donor, and it actually spreads the word. And that for us is, is it's the message being spread
1: um, of organ donation. Is there an age limit either way to your- young or too old
4: normally not too young i think as, as far as i know the, the the an organ donor the youngest is was a couple of months um, old because there are children that are awaiting organ transplants and normally with the heart it needs to be the same size mm. weight blood group um but with uh yeah in gen i think the age limit normally about 70 is the cutoff okay normally but you know they've used corneas from 85 year old
1: If they're Um, still fine, they're fine. If they're
4: still okay, yeah.
1: And if you, if you want to decide what, which organs you'd like to donate, yes. if you think, well, I, I don't really want to do the bone and the skin thing, yes. I just want to do the organs, the heart and the lungs, And can yes. you decide or is, it, yes. is that decision taken out of your no, hands? No, no,
4: absolutely. You can decide, tell your family, that's very important. You can also indicate on your organ donor card what you'd like to donate, but then discuss it with your family as well.
1: Do you need to have some sort of identification that you are an organ donor or can you just tell people that you're an organ donor? You
4: can literally just tell people. We have the identification, the registration process, the registration is for for us to measure where where are we doing very well where are we not doing well, in provinces in terms of how people heard about us campaigns that we've run, so registering as an organ donor is for us to keep this information and eventually make it accessible to the hospitals Um, so, yes, it, it, it's not necessary to register or carry a card. You actually just need to tell your family.
1: And the one thing we need to make very clear, I was talking to somebody earlier in the show about donating human breast milk for prem yes. babies, and mm-hmm. I made this point with her as well. We need to make it very clear that there is no money here that changes hands Absolutely. at all.
4: Absolutely, no money exchanging. At no, so, firstly, no money when you sign up as an organ donor. It costs you nothing to register as an organ donor. Secondly, it costs you nothing at the time of your death. So, once, once you've been diagnosed brain dead by the doctors, from that point on, the medication, the removal of the organs all the hospital bills are covered by the state or the private sector um, also no money if you are donating a kidney to someone and generally kidney donation is to someone you know so it would be you would need to know the person a family
1: you, member usually family or mm. friend
4: but you have to have proof the Department of Health actually requires proof that you know each other just to stop the process of actually money exchanging hands in any way
1: can you donate an organ if you're still alive I think you can
4: yes you can donate a, a kidney while you're still alive My colleague, Joester, he might be listening now, but he donated a kidney to his son when he was two years old. Um, So, yes, very possible. And then you can also now, they've started a a live-related liver program in South Africa. So, Mm. in Johannesburg, you can donate a part of your liver. They've done it from a mother to a child. I think they've done a few transplants already and um, a doctor uh, who's just actually, I was reading disease. about that
1: actually about yes. the mother who donated part of her liver because yes. her liver will regenerate
4: yes and so and mm. the, the child's as well so that's amazing because that hopefully will cut down the waiting time you see what we're seeing a trend of is more live related transplants because there's just not enough donors so as the li- as donors decrease the number of live related are increasing so it's important to have these programs definitely
1: what about religious objections to donation do you most, have that
4: most religions support We do have, um, I think for me, often people use, and this is my personal opinion, people use religion as an excuse not to donate. They often say, but it's against my religion. And when we speak to those uh, um, religious leaders, they say, but no, it's actually not. It's in the Quran, it's in the Bible, it's in, so they actually refer to to passages in, in scriptures or in those texts. So what we encourage people to do is if you're not sure, speak to your religious leader about it, but most actually support organ donation.
1: And what if you've decided to become an organ donor, but a few years down the line, sadly, you change your mind. Can you do that?
4: Absolutely, you can change your mind. You tear up your organ donor card, you inform your family of your wish. Very rarely we get that, that people actually want to. It might be something that actually put them off, Perhaps they saw something in a movie or whatever the case may be. We try to find out what the reason is. Um, but absolutely, you can change your mind at any time.
1: I know there have been some rather sad stories where somebody has wanted to be an organ donor, has mm. passed away, and yet the family then at the time deny it. And if they yes. do that, then you have to go by the family's wishes. Absolutely. You can't the, override them because yes. the person who's passed away wanted to be an organ yes. donor and even has a card. The family mm-hmm. can still override that.
4: The family can still override it. What we have discussed with the transplant coordinators. They're the ones who speak to the family at the time of death they often say to us you know if, the, if they if the family member know the wish um it's often easier to get consent that way so very very um not in many cases that's happened um so yes it, it is important to to discuss it with the family and m- make them honor your wish you know mm. make, really make them know that you're passionate about helping others and this is this is really your final wish and we hope that they don't go against it
1: and just one thing, don't think that you can solve the problem by putting it in your will because your will yes. isn't going to be read in time. It's no. going to be way too late to do that. <laughs> you have to tell your family yes. now. It's yes. one of those things. I know it's not a pleasant thing to talk about, yes. but unfortunately, it's if you're wanting to be an organ donor, you need to tell them now. Absolutely.
4: You find that a lot of people in the community, someone who's awaiting a transplant, a child, stories like that will motivate people because they'll see it and they're, or it's someone that they know. I mean, you you wouldn't believe how many people. I don't have specific statistics, but I know that there are thousands of people that suffer from chronic kidney failure, and it's becoming... um, it's affecting so many more people because of lifestyle, um, and it specifically affects more African people. Three to four times more likely to affect African people. So this is becoming such a problem in South Africa, and more because of this, more people are going to eventually need kidney transplants and dialysis treatment.
1: And that's you can't get that that easily, no, and it's very not expensive. Not in the state
4: sector. <laughs> it's
1: very expensive. Yeah. So how? low are the numbers? I mean, we're we obviously looking for lots more people to sign yes, up or be absolutely. at least be aware that this is an option. Yeah.
4: so some statistics. Um, this year we're trying to sign on 50,000 organ donors. That's double the amount of registered donors we had from last year. Currently we've signed up about 20,000 this year, so we've got quite a lot to go, so we encourage everyone to sign up. The number of patients waiting, about 4,300 people waiting in the country, adults and children, uh, only 600 transplants were performed last year. Oh. Many of them can not be kept on dialysis, some wait for years and years. Um, Others die waiting. They suffer, they die waiting. I've seen photographs. I've seen kids at Red Cross who have physically died because organs
1: have not come in time. Definitely something to discuss with your family as soon as possible. Yes. Samantha, thank you so much for joining us on the thank show you, this Karen. evening.
4: Thank you so much for creating awareness on our behalf. I do appreciate.
1: Only it. a pleasure. Samantha Folskink is the executive director of the Organ Donor Foundation, and for more information on how you could become an organ donor, you can take a look at the website. It's www.odf.org.za, and you can also register online. Make, they've tried to make your life as simple as possible. You can also call them if you'd like some more information on 0800 226611 double double Health
0: Matters with Karen Key
1: I'm going to be speaking this evening with David Bayever, and he is with the Pharmaceutical Society Community Pharmacy DrugWise program. And we're going to be talking about something that isn't spoken about very often. We're talking about opioid dependence, and that is all to do with codeine and tablets that contain that particular substance. David, good evening. Welcome to the show.
0: Good evening and thank you very much for the opportunity.
1: So there's been something that has suddenly come to the fore here in South Africa and it's called the Codeine Care Initiative. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about what the aim of this initiative is?
0: Essentially what we are trying to do is to ensure that there is no misuse or abuse of codeine-containing preparations by the members of the public. And the reason for that is because codeine is available either as an over-the-counter analgesic or on prescription. Our concern is that there is a relevant place for the use of codeine-containing preparations, but that the public very often are not aware of the fact that because it's a medicine, the perception being that it's therefore safe, that it could also lead to other harmful effects as well. And the initiative is then to just... Clearly identify and make people aware of the potential danger associated therewith.
1: Now, codeine is considered an opioid.
0: That is correct. It is of the opioid family. Uh, it is a derivative. Correct.
1: Because I think when people hear the word opioid, they think, "Oh no, that's actually quite dangerous." But codeine, oh, yeah, I take that for a headache.
0: Absolutely. And that is part of what we are concerned about is the fact that because it is seen as not an illicit substance, it's something that is available in a pharmacy, something that is available as a medicine, that therefore the perception is that it must automatically be safer than anything else. And the issue is that it is as dependent producing and can be as dangerous as any other illicit substance if it is not taken appropriately.
1: Rather frighteningly, I was reading a statistic that said it's estimated that between 26.3 And 36.1 million people are dependent on opioids worldwide. I mean, that is an alarming number.
0: Absolutely and of course we don't have statistics for South Africa but there's no reason to believe that our statistics would be any different to anywhere else because of the nature of the actual ingredient which is the codeine and that is what makes it potentially dangerous.
1: Now the thing about something like codeine or the opioid family of of, of medications is that it is very useful when people are having severe pain. It does help that. It's very effective. But then the pain goes away and people, not everybody, but a certain number of people then become addicted to this particular medication.
0: What you're saying is absolutely correct, and of even more importance is the fact that one develops what we call a tolerance for the drug as well, which means that eventually people start taking more than what would be ideal under the circumstances. There is a real place for an effective analgesic such as codeine-containing preparations, and we, in particular in South Africa, have a real need for it based on the fact that we have such a high prevalence of HIV and the neuropathic pains associated with HIV. So we are looking to retain the status quo of codeine-containing preparations as a Schedule II Preparation, which makes it available over-the-counter without the necessity of having to sit in a queue at a clinic in order to get an analgesic to treat the pain. And that at the same time, we are also concerned about the potential of it being harmful to a patient.
1: So how are you going to control this now, David?
0: What we are looking to do is uh, we are asking that patients will present an ID number, which will then be logged onto a central database. So in other words, those people who have a tendency to use excessive quantities will be flagged on that database to point out that there is a potential that they might be taking more than what is required or potentially more uh, dangerous for them. This database will be run throughout the entire country. So whether it is a prescription item that is containing codeine, whether it's a cough mixture that contains codeine, whether it's an analgesic that contains codeine, we will be measuring the actual codeine content that that particular patient will be taking and then alert them to the possibility that there might be a potential problem.
1: You know, when you have something like this, just playing devil's advocate here for a moment, people will start thinking, you know, Big Brother's watching and they they get sort of a bit anxious about that. What exactly will happen? I mean, they're not going to suddenly have the detective branch knocking on the door or something. I mean, it's not going to be to that extreme.
0: Absolutely not. And that's not what it's all about either. It's not to criminalize or to make people feel that they are guilty. Uh, All we are trying to do is to make them aware of the potential danger that can result from taking excessive quantities and that the possibility that they might have a notion that if one is good, two must automatically be better. Uh, And that might not necessarily be the case. Two might just be too much. So the whole purpose is to help and engage with the patient themselves identifying if it is necessary for them to be taking the amounts that they are taking and if there is a potential of harm to then point them in the right direction as to where they can get help
1: now for some people unfortunately this is a genetic problem
0: unfortunately what you're saying is absolutely correct there is a genetic component to addiction and this being one of those addictive substances that could very well be the case now, the problem is that we can't read our genes. So when we start by taking it because we have a condition which is painful, we don't recognize that we are possibly falling into the category of a person who could become dependent on the drug.
1: The thing as well, I, mean, I mentioned the genetic thing, but it also affects people very differently because, I mean, Joe Blogs might take two tablets every day or every however many hours and not have the same effect as somebody who's possibly taking a whole lot less of it.
0: And What you're saying is, again, absolutely correct, and that is the reason why we need to discuss with the patient and to identify whether there is, without accusing them, but to identify whether there is a reason and a a genuine need for them to be taking the quantities that they are taking. We've set the limit at a very high limit, but what we will also be monitoring is the intervals at which they are making the purchases. Ideally, we want to get to a situation where those people who are genuinely abusing because of the addictive nature of the drug are taken out of the system, and those people who are genuinely dependent on some form of analgesia will be entitled to carry on receiving their medication.
1: Will the, will the pharmacies be advised then not to dispense this to anybody again? Is that how you possibly get to the sort of end line of the whole thing?
0: What we are looking at is there are a number of approaches. The the, the first approach will be that at the point of sale, that the pharmacist will be alerted and it's for them to then engage with the patient to identify what the real need is. That would be the one. At the same time, the pharmacist, if it's on a prescription, would also be monitoring whether the patient is going to more than one doctor, where the one prescriber might not necessarily know that another prescriber has already issued a prescription for a similar containing preparation, and that would be the responsibility of the pharmacist then to notify the doctor as well. And then finally, what we have is a website where patients can log in on their own and identify whether there is a potential and whether they are perhaps falling into the trap of becoming a dependent. There's two websites,
1: uh, which are the turn the ter- it's www.turntohelp.co.za, and that actually has a doctor locator on there where you can Correct. actually go and find help for yourself.
0: Correct the importance to understand here is that when we're talking about abuse and substance abuse in general, in general terms, this is a very specific and a very, very specialized area and we recognize that there are certain doctors who are better trained, are better equipped to be able to deal with, there might be an underlying problem which has not been identified or there might be the genetic factor that you said that could be the predisposing that particular patient. These doctors will be available and they have gone through more intensive training in identifying what the possibilities are as to the reason why they are using that particular drug and then to be able to point them in the right direction as to how to get help.
1: When is this all going to be coming into effect, David?
0: The launch date is the 2nd of January for 2014, What we will be starting with are some pilot studies around the country to identify whether the actual machinery that is necessary to drive this is working, but the official launch for the general public will be the 2nd of January 2014.
1: And I'm I'm assuming that you'll be advertising this in the press and the media will know about it, so people are going to be aware of it?
0: We are going to be going on a public campaign to make everybody aware and to Allay any fears that they might have that this is in order to try and decriminalize or deny them. Uh, it's really just as a public service to help them not to fall into the trap where they become dependent.
1: What sort of uh, side effects or dependency things would people actually notice if they were taking this and think, oh, it's not really doing anything to me. I'm fine. What would they be, should be they be looking out for?
0: There are a number of things that one would automatically notice, and the most important one that we think that people should be aware of is the fact that they might be developing a tolerance, where when they used to take one tablet, it gave them relief for four to six hours. Now, all of a sudden, they find that they have to take more than one tablet, or they have to take it at shorter intervals, and that would be a clear indication that they've now developed tolerance, which is the danger sign that we're looking out for. Besides that, there are other certain physical symptoms that they would notice like a withdrawal symptoms where if they don't have the tablet, they actually develop a a headache, which is a typical rebound effect, which is part of the withdrawal that they would be going through. There might be other things like, for example, nausea, vomiting. They might feel very tired. They might feel that their breathing is being affected, which are all side effects of codeine. And the worst possibility is that they will develop constipation.
1: Okay, so it's not just the addiction to the medication itself that could be a problem, but you could end up with physical issues as well.
0: And that's exactly the reason why we are concerned about the possibility that there's people using the medication without necessarily knowing the harmful effects that could occur
1: okay so you might feel that you're okay but if you're taking what is the sort of limit or is there somewhere that people can say well that's enough um is there sort of a limit that you should set that people should be
0: aware of we've set a limit for ourselves as a uh, a yardstick to say that if we notice that a person is consuming certain amounts that we would then notify them and of course this is age dependent because it could be a child it could be an adolescent as opposed to an, an elderly person so it depending on on all of those issues which we will identify from the id number we would then be able to flag those people who are at risk and it's really aimed at being of service to the public rather, as I said, than to make them feel guilty about the fact that they need to take something. They might very, very genuinely have a real need and we don't want to deny them that either.
1: So it's a case of don't sit there worrying about the fact that Big Brother is watching you. They are looking out for you. They're trying to make your life better and and trying to save you possibly from lots of more problems down the line because you could end up with a lot more physical issues if you keep on doing this and you shouldn't be doing this.
0: Absolutely correct. And the other problem that we have is that because South Africa is signatory to a number of United Nations treaties where we are obliged to control those type of substances which are psychoactive or which are dependence producing, that this is just another initiative that we are taking in order to demonstrate that we are doing everything possible to live up to the expectation that we have in terms of the treaties that we have signed.
1: Obviously, now, this is a relatively new initiative. Is this something that has been of concern for a number of years or is this something that's really just come to the fore and you're seeing more and more possible addiction as, we, as we've got to the st- stage now?
0: what we have recognized is and this is an international trend that has developed is that prescription medicine and particularly the analgesic market has become a very very fast growing criteria in the United States, it's the second fastest growing group of drugs which are now being abused. And as I said, that is potentially because of the uh, notion that it's a medicine, so therefore it cannot be as dangerous as illicit drugs, which is the one side. The second side is that because it's not an illicit substance, if it's found in my possession, there's no criminal record or that I won't be charged with any criminal uh, misdemeanors. So that then also suggests the reason why people might be turning to prescriptions and prescription substance for the drugs of choice when it comes to abuse. So these, these are some of the areas that have also prompted it. The other area is that South Africa was flagged as being the one country in the African continent where there is the highest amount of codeine being consumed. And that, of course, then alerted us to the fact that maybe we should be looking at the potential of it being misused as well or not being used appropriately.
1: Well, David, it sounds like an amazing initiative and one I think possibly that will do all of us a whole lot of good and uh, we'll learn a lot. So we need to be aware of this. Take note of what's going to be out there in the media and the press about this in the coming months. And uh, just have a look at your own consumption if you're one of those people who's taking codeine on a regular basis. Just try and figure out why you're taking it. And if you've got a problem coming off it, there is this website, www.turntohelp.co.za. As we mentioned, there are doctor locators on there. You can find a doctor closest to you that will be able to help you. This whole initiative is really all about making your life a lot better and a lot safer. David, thank you so much for joining me on the show this evening.
0: My pleasure. And again, thank you for the opportunity.
1: I was chatting there with David Baeva. He is with the Pharmaceutical Society Community Pharmacy DrugWise Program, and we were talking there about the Codeine Care Initiative. And as we mentioned, if you'd like to find out more about where to find a doctor to go to for help, -help www.turntohelp.co.za. And there's also another website if you'd like to find out more on opioid dependence. It's www.sams.co.za. Well, that's it for Health Matters for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me this evening. I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening, just after nine, with time to travel. And I'll be chatting then with Rob Kasky, raconteur extraordinaire, about his West African trip he with sailed up the west coast of Africa. Well, if you need any information about something you've heard on the show this evening, or you've missed a contact number or a website address, you can email me on healthmatters at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM. Well, Stephen Kirk is up right now with some nighttime music. Hello, Stephen.